before we get started, uh, let's pray. Lord, as we remember your journey to the cross, help us to understand both what you did for us and, and how it affects us today. In your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Okay. So, when I first moved to Japan, overseas obviously. It was very cold. Yeah, that's my dryzer bone. Yep. <laughs> when I first moved there, it was a very long and tedious process with sudden flurries of activity. I, I was laid off from my first job in Brisbane uh, and less than a week later, I was on a plane to Singapore and Japan for an interview for, a job, for the job in Japan. But I started that week without even a birth certificate, let alone a passport, let alone a visa. And I picked up my days-old passport from the Japanese consulate on the way to the airport to Singapore. I ended the week that week after being laid off in Singapore in a five-star hotel, completely overwhelmed. After a flurry of a couple of days in Singapore and five or six days in Tokyo, I returned home to wait and wait. It took three months for my working visa uh, to be approved. I spent much of that time with my family up in Charters Towers because that was cheap. I didn't have to pay for food and stuff. (laughs) I was running out of money. When the visa finally came through, I didn't start packing until the night before I left. That was my fault, but flurry of activity. I don't remember a thing about the actual flight to Japan, except that I only took a couple of suitcases to start my new life there. It was February 1991. Given such a lengthy and drawn-out process, it's interesting to ask, when did I make the decision to move to Japan? Was it when I accepted the interview? Was it while I was over there on the interview? Was it when I stepped on that flight in February? Now, from my internal perspective, I know that I made the decision while I was in Tokyo for the interview. For the last few days of that trip, I was left to my own devices to explore what would be my new home. I found it daunting and difficult. The food was weird. I could hardly read a thing since English was very rare in Japan back And of course I didn't know Japanese because I'd never been planning to go to Japan. And everything was crowded, noisy, smelly and small. But I decided then that this would be my home for the next few years. And God would use it to discipline me. To mould me and shape me into a better disciple. And he did. But you could say that it wasn't until, you could say, if you wanted to, that it wasn't until I set foot on that plane in February that I really made the commitment. I could have pulled out at any time up until then with minimal effort and cost. I actually learned later that it's not uncommon 
for expats in Tokyo to bail after a few months in the city. It's also overwhelming. They just give up after a few months. <clears throat> Passion Week, the almost week between Palm Sunday and the cross, is similar. It's a process where Jesus is moving towards his final destination, the cross, but its beginning, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, demonstrates the finality of his decision to pursue the cross. Now, I want to talk briefly about why Jesus chose to enter Jerusalem the way he did, what he was doing in that process. And I want to talk about how we face the same sorts of points in our lives. If you've been doing the Tuesday night Bible study, some of this will sound familiar because Hebrews offers precisely the same challenge to stand up for our faith despite the possibility of persecution. But first, let's get the events of Palm Sunday straight in our heads. In the morning, Jesus joins potentially tens of thousands of pilgrims on the road from Jericho to Jerusalem. The Jewish historian Josephus tells us that Jerusalem was often host to two to three million people during the Passover festival. Jerusalem's normal population at this time was around 80,000. So millions of Jews came from around the diaspora, all around that area of the world, every year for Passover. Many made their way to Jerusalem via the Jericho Road. It was one of the major roads. Now, on the way out of Jericho, Jesus encountered and healed two blind beggars, as we read in Matthew chapter 20. As Jesus and the disciples left the town of Jericho, a large crowd followed behind. The two blind men were sitting beside the road. When they heard that Jesus was coming that way, they began shouting, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus healed them and they followed him. Now, the trip up from Jericho to Jerusalem is about 21 kilometers in distance, but it's all uphill, a long way uphill. In fact, 1,025 meters vertical ascent over that 21 kilometers. This is a compressed cross section, so you can see how it's just a constant climb from 220 meters below sea level at Jericho to 825 metres above sea level at the Mount of Olives. Now, to to give you uh, a local reference, imagine climbing up to the best of all lookout, which is 1,020 or so metres above sea level, from the sea level, over 20 kilometres. So, in this photo, the coast is about 30 kilometres away, so that, this, um, this hill over here maybe, is about 20 kilometres away. So walking from there, if that was sea level, all the way up to the best of all. So Malcolm, you know you wanted to walk that day. Yep. Really nice ground was there and cold. Yep. And walked all the way up to, you sort of climbed across the rock. How high up was that? How many feet? Well, uh, metres, it's about, I think that's about six or seven hundred metres. Yep. Yeah, and we, yeah, we actually did uh, 
total elevation change of 800 meters in the long hike when we did the long one. The short hike was a total elevation change of 400 meters. So Jericho is like more than double that. Um, <clears throat> so that's what Jesus, the crowd, and probably the two blind men as well did. Just a day in the life for an ancient Jew. Apparently it would take people of that time eight to nine dusty hours. This is the modern road up to Jericho. And the countryside looked like that back then as well, apparently. That's what it looks like now. That's obviously the modern Jericho in the background. Now, once they got up to Bethphage and Bethany, on the same ridgeline as the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples in to get the donkey colt and its mother. Then riding out, riding the colt, Jesus headed down into the valley of Kidron that separates Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. And as Mark records, those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Now the Pharisees weren't too happy about this. So Luke tells us that some of the Pharisees among the crowd said, Teacher, rebuke your followers for saying things like that. And Jesus replied, If they kept quiet, the stones along the road would burst into cheers. And Luke adds, But as he came closer to Jerusalem and saw the city ahead, he began to weep. How I wish today that you of all people would understand the way to peace. But now it's too late. And peace is hidden from your eyes. Before long your enemies will build ramparts against your walls and encircle you and close in on you from every side. They will crush you into the ground and your children with you. Your enemies will not leave a single stone in place because you did not recognize it when God visited you. And finally, at the end of the day, according to Mark, Jesus came to Jerusalem and went into the temple. After looking around carefully at everything, he left because it was late in the afternoon. Then he returned to Bethany with the 12 disciples. So that's what happened on Palm Sunday. Now it's likely that the surrounding villages were filled with people and as John reminds us, Jesus had a welcoming place to stay with Lazarus, Mary and Martha in Bethany. Given the context, it's not hard to understand why Jesus got to the temple and merely looked around before heading to Bethany to rest. Now, you'll notice if you read the Gospel accounts that Luke uh, and Luke jumped straight to the cleansing of the temple, but Mark and Matthew clarify that it was the next day. So those are the facts. But how do we understand Jesus' motives Luke's account gives us two clues, both in his response to the Pharisees and his response to the site of Jerusalem. When Jesus saw Jerusalem in all its festal glory, he didn't rejoice. Instead, he mourned. He knew that salvation would not come through this great temple, but that it was doomed to destruction. Nonetheless, Jesus understood that something great was happening. 
something so great that even the natural world was somehow aware of it. As he tells the Pharisees, if the people kept quiet, the stones on the road would burst into cheers. Now we find out what was going on in that bigger picture in Paul's in the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans. Paul says, sorry, went the wrong way. Paul says, For all creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory. For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies he has promised us. You see, in entering Jerusalem in this way, Jesus was beginning the harvest of those first fruits that Paul talks about. He'd begun his final steps to the cross. Jesus' blood on the cross sets our spirits free from the law of sin and death. This is the first fruits of Jesus' salvation of the whole world. And furthermore, Jesus' resurrection three days after his death is the first, fruit, first fruits of a new creation. This creation is set free from the bondage to corruption. Jesus' resurrection and the redemptive power of his spirit in our lives is the down payment, the evidence that, that this recreation will happen to all of us who have faith in him. That is what the stones would have cried out about. Our saviour, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes as God's servant. And, sorry, and we understand even more of Jesus' motivation from the book of Hebrews. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a large crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up, and let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion and, uh, who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he is seated in the place of honour beside God's throne. What was the joy set before him? To serve God by reuniting human beings with their creator. That was the purpose that Jesus set his face towards on that dusty day 2,000 years ago. 
As he climbed the long road from Jericho to Jerusalem, one desire beat in his heart to set his people free from the bonds of sin and death. So why did Jesus choose a colt and a colt of a donkey to ride into Jerusalem? Well, the answer is fairly simple, but it has rich historical connections. You see, a donkey is a beast of burden, not just in the Middle East, but all around the world. Conquerors ride horses, not donkeys. Kings ride donkeys only when they're in danger of losing their kingdom, such as when King David fled from his son's rebellion down the same road to Jericho a thousand years before Jesus went up it. Jesus, of course, was the king of the universe, the king of kings and the lord of lords. Why ride a donkey? Even more extreme, why ride a cult of a donkey? Simply because Jesus was not here to conquer. Jesus was here to die. At the end of ages, at Jesus' second coming, Jesus will indeed come as a conqueror. And all evil and wickedness will flee from him. But first, this time, he came as a sacrifice, a humble lamb to be slaughtered so that the rebels might become children. That's us. We're the rebels who've been made children by Jesus' humble sacrifice. God didn't have to do this. He could have destroyed us all. He could have prevented us from even existing in the first place. But instead, he killed his own son so that we might receive his life into us. So when you see a donkey, think of that. The all-powerful, eternal, majestic son of God riding on a tiny colt of a donkey because he wanted to lay his life down so that you could receive life. So we come to the question, what sort of decision does God have for us to make? Jesus' decision was concrete and real, dusty, smelly, crowded and noisy and ultimately deadly. Where does God want us to point our faces to, to climb to? And once we understand that, how do we make sure that we remember what our purpose is? Do you think that while I was waiting those three long months for my Japanese working visa to come through, that I forgot what my decision was? That I forgot what I was waiting for? Does anyone think that? (laughs) No, of course not. (laughs) It was an ever-present reality for me for months before I made it to Japan. And for Jesus, he came to die. He never forgot that. He never let anything distract him from that. And for us, we must remember that this means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life is begun. 
And all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. This Easter, this year, this lifetime, let's remember that we have the ministry of explaining to the world that Christ has reconciled them to God, to himself, through his death on the cross. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for choosing to see the joy beyond the cross and humbling yourself even to death for our sakes. Fill us with your spirit so that we too might serve our Father as we too look forward to joy beyond our lives here on earth. In your name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.